Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they took from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest this week is Heather Higginbottom, president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Policy Center. Prior to her career in the private sector, Heather had the distinction of serving as the number two official at two different executive agencies. First, as Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and later as Deputy Secretary for Management and Resources at the State Department. She is a veteran of the Obama White House, the 2008 Obama presidential campaign, and of Capitol Hill, where she worked for Senator John Kerry. We recorded this episode on Friday, December 4th, remotely, of course, given the circumstances. I hope you enjoy the show. Heather Higginbottom, welcome to Staffer. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited to be interviewing you. It has been a while since uh, we caught up. And there are a lot of reasons why I'm excited to talk with you. But one of them is you are the favorite daughter of Shenango Valley, New York, (laughs) right outside of Binghamton, which is uh, also my hometown. I'm from Vestal, New York. Um, Can you tell our uh, listeners what it was like growing up in that area, but also specifically about your family? Absolutely. And it is really some Southern tier pride here. So some of our (laughs) listeners may know that reference, but um, a a big, a big, um, big shout out to the Southern tier of New York. Um, You know, I grew up in a very small little town outside of Binghamton, New York, um, and both of my parents were academics. My dad uh, was the dean of our local community college, and my mom taught English and eventually at the university level. And Right from the very beginning, my parents were very engaged in conversations around politics and policy and current events. My mom took me to events in downtown Binghamton, whether they were marches or educational events. It was just kind of the fabric of our family's conversations. And it was not in it wasn't something that felt sort of deliberate or forced. It was kind of in the fabric of our um, our reference points, I guess. The news was on. We talked about it. And I was really attuned to that, uh, not understanding it would be something one day I'd want to be a part of, but something that I thought about. And um, I think actually was a bit unique between myself, my neighbors, my friends. Those were conversations I was having more at home than I was in school. And um, I think maybe it, I didn't appreciate until I got ready to leave home that maybe that was a field I could explore professionally. Um, and I, I, I'm thrilled that I got the chance to do that, but I certainly didn't have that as a goal when I was a kid and, and sort of appreciating politics and policy and government, what was happening. Yeah. So when you left uh, Shenango Valley, you studied at uh, University of Rochester and then after that at GW, both schools so well known for their political science departments and associated um, uh, studies. How did you get from GW to Capitol Hill, where you first started working in Senator Kerry's office. Well, actually, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Rochester, I came to D.C. Uh, to be a congressional intern. And it was funny. I had this, this chance to do a semester abroad, and I decided to do the Washington semester program. And I thought, well, I kind of think I want to try this. So I had some friends who went off to Spain, and I was all by myself in D.C., and I thought, did I do the right thing? Um, but I did because I ended up having a phenomenal experience. There was a professor at the University of Rochester named Richard Fenno. He really he just passed away a few months ago. Absolute icon in the field of political science. And he ran this program in, in, in Washington. 
And he had an approach that was unique for these internship programs. And it was go by yourself, find your own internship, do it full time, write a couple papers, not take some courses, not a rigorous program. You got to get in there and feel the place day in and day out, really see how decisions are made. And it was just this awakening for me. I mean, I was the like most junior person in this office. And I worked for a congressman from Houston, Texas named Gene Green. And he was newly elected and he didn't have that much support staff. And I was actually had started working in a different office. And they said they were next door and they said, we don't have anyone to cover the phones. And Gene is going to get sworn in. Would you mind? And that led to this this internship. But it gave me this vantage point that was incredible because I could see what the constituents were writing about, what they were calling about. Uh, when Gene was first elected, he signed every single letter that was written from his office. That did not last forever, I'm, I'm sure, but it did in those early days. And I got to prepare a lot of that. So I really felt like I had this fantastic vantage point. And I became so close to the team members there that they said, if you'll stay on for the summer, we'll let you run the intern program and you can shadow Gene one day a week in whatever meetings he has to the extent, you know, if there's any you know, occasionally there'd be something that wouldn't be appropriate for someone to attend. But, you know, they said any meeting he has on his calendar. And I was at that point, uh, and still am, but really interested in education policy. And he had a meeting with the Secretary of Education, Dick Riley. And Gene said, well, you have to come sit in on this meeting and hear what we talk about. I mean, it was just incredible. So I was hooked. And yeah. as soon as I graduated from Rochester, I moved down to D.C. And I've been here ever since. And um worked at a nonprofit for a couple of years, but my aspiration was was to, to be on the Hill. And so when I finished my degree in public policy, I started, you know, knocking on doors on the Hill and was lucky enough to get a job working for Senator Kerry. Well, I, I love that story. It is um, it really captures the fact that the, when you're in politics, there's much more work to do than there are people. So if you are hardworking and smart and show a willingness to do anything, opportunities will be presented to you and you grab on with both hands, you know, and really soak up what you can from them. Um, so when you were at Senator Kerry's office, um, this was a period of time from 99 to 04 of immense significance in, in the country. We went through... Um, a contested election uh, that ended up at the Supreme Court, September 11th terrorist attacks, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And on top of all that, your boss ran for president. Now, you had a master's degree in public policy. You had interned on the Hill, but those years must have felt like an advanced degree. What were some of the lessons that you took from that time that helped you later in the White House and at the State Department? It really, looking back on it, it, it really was a remarkable time. And sometimes you don't appreciate that when you're in the moment going from, from task to task. But uh, there were some moments there that really crystallized, wow, this is, this is history. This is something to learn from. And, and I did take those lessons. I'd say my very first lesson from having a real job on the Hill, not being an intern, because I thought I knew everything after my internship, of course, but um, was I didn't know what I was doing. I, I got this great job. I was a legislative assistant for, for Senator Kerry covering domestic social issues, which I cared deeply about. I was so excited. And the first month, I thought, I'm not sure what I do in this job. And I'd get this 
huge stack of mail every day. You know, every interest organization would provide newsletters, constituents, et cetera. And I thought, do I just read these things all day? What am I supposed to do? And I think part of my sort of confusion about my role and my job is when you start those jobs on Capitol Hill, no one trains you. No one says, you, you go to meetings and there's some things that are on your schedule, but no one says, here are your objectives. You know, you, you respond yeah. to requests from your boss. You kind of, my, my first lesson was, I got to figure out what I'm supposed to do in this role, how I am supposed to contribute, where I fit in this office. And it took my talking with um, someone in a similar role at a different office who volunteered, uh, who offered to have coffee with me. And we were just chatting. I didn't know her very well. And then she said, you know, when I first started, I had no idea what to do. And it just opened this door and she was enormously helpful to me. And after that, I just knew what my, my goals were. I knew who to ask for guidance. I knew what to get from the senator. I knew I needed to sit down with him and say, what do you want to achieve? How can I contribute to that? But I was intimidated to ask for that meeting yeah. when I first started. So that was, that was my very first lesson, was being completely disoriented and never having been in a position I couldn't figure out before. And it didn't take long, but it was such a valuable lesson to just say, if you don't know what you're doing, you've got to ask for help. And I didn't want to because I didn't want people to think that they'd made the wrong hire. I wanted them to have utter confidence in me. And they were only going to have that confidence if I could prove that I knew what I was doing. So I had yeah. to ask for help. And that was really important. And as I realized the pace and tempo of the Senate and of which I should pause on that because folks may say, well, we don't see a lot happening in Congress. What do you mean? Well, things move a mile a minute. Your priorities change. Someone um, puts a bill on the floor that you're supposed to draft an amendment for. You've got two hours. You have to learn something. I mean, it's very, very fast paced. And so when you add in things like a massive terrorist attack that lead up to a presidential election, that agility was absolutely critical. And developing that ability and making sure I know I had developed relationships, I knew who to ask for information and how to go about synthesizing it and pulling it together was incredibly important. And I think one of the big observations I took from that period of time was that you have to be comfortable not being the smartest person in the room. And what I mean by that is, if you want to drive a process, if you want to be responsive, if you want to be ready to go, you can't do it all yourself. You got to bring in other people and have built relationships to do so. And so that was a big evolution in those, in those few years. And um, because things were changing so dramatically, so quickly, uh, if I hadn't figured out how to do that, I don't think I would have been terribly successful in that role. Yeah. I remember that time and and likewise the pace, the torrent. Um, and my boss wasn't running for president. Um, when you add that on, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think staffers, if they're in politics long enough, learn to deal with is disappointment. And and clearly the 04 election didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. What would your advice be to folks whose bosses, you know, may have just lost and they're in, you know, up on Capitol Hill, closing up offices and, and dealing with a transition that has them, you know, saying goodbye to a boss and an office and, and colleagues that they loved. It really is gut wrenching. And on some level, when you're in a, a political environment, you know that your job is only as secure as the next election. It's somewhere in your ecosystem of thought. But day to day, 
you're trying to get things done. You're trying to win. You're trying to get to the next step. And so you don't really think what happens if until you're confronted with it. And it it really is gut-wrenching. I remember on election night in 2004, I was in Boston Common, you know, preparing for John Kerry's celebration, listening to James Taylor sing a song on the stage, when on the big jumbo screen, the outcome in Florida popped up, which made it clear we weren't going to win. And I was in utter shock. And just a few hours earlier, my very good friend on the campaign, Sarah Bianchi, said, you know, I know these early exit polls look good, but I went through this with Al Gore four years ago. Don't believe anything until you see the final results. Stay focused. Be prepared for any outcome. And I, you know, tipped her, my cheered with my glass of wine and said, thanks for the advice and went merrily off into the night. And when I was in a um, crouched in a corner of my bathroom in my hotel room later that night, I thought, boy, I wished I'd listened to Bianchi because it was a really long night and it was so devastatingly disappointing. And I wasn't prepared for the outcome. I hadn't prepared myself for it. I didn't ever think we were going to lose. And it's in retrospect, uh, really silly to have not prepared for that because you don't know what can happen in an election and one that was going to be close. Um, so that that was that was really hard. And I found myself in the weeks after that campaign, I'd be driving around somewhere and I'd burst into tears. And I'm not a, really prone to doing that. It was a very unusual kind of experience because a week after the election, a week after I'm on this presidential campaign, incredible experience, really imagining what it would be like for John Kerry to be president, I was sitting at my old desk in the Russell building, facing the same wall I'd stared at for four years, walking across the hall to advise him on whether he should sign a letter to a cabinet member about an appropriations bill. And mm-hmm. it was it was really depressing for him, but <laughs> it also was depressing for those of us who'd been through it. And I, I wished I had been more resilient going into that and more prepared. Um, but I will say it made the election four years later that much sweeter. Yes. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the years that followed, so after between 04 and 08, you, you left the Senate and you founded and ran a group called the American Security Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit that uh, still exists today and is dedicated to increasing discussion and understanding around a range of national security issues. You then returned to Senator Kerry's office as his legislative director. And in 2007, you became the policy director for then Senator Obama's presidential campaign. So I have to ask you, having gone through that searing experience of 04, what made you say, I'm going to get back in and I'm going to do it, you know, (laughs) on the campaign level with Senator Obama? Well, it was such an incredible experience to be part of a presidential campaign. And, you know, to to be with a candidate who became the nominee, there's so many candidates at the outset of, of the process, and then to get so close and to care so much about the outcome, I just didn't want to do anything else ever again. I wanted to have that experience again. And I wanted I wanted to be working for someone whom I truly believed in because you turn your whole life over during those processes. You don't have a life. You don't see your family. You don't see your friends. You don't talk to them. You don't respond to emails. It's all consuming. And I really wanted to do it again. And when Barack Obama came on the scene and joined uh, the Senate and and my now husband was actually working for him at the time and there were other candidates and I was talking with other campaigns but I thought I'd only do it for this guy this is this is where my heart is and I was so lucky to have that opportunity but I did have the the reality that I was working for John Kerry and he had to decide whether he was going to run for president or not that's right and uh, 
it was only after he decided that he wouldn't run again that I began seriously exploring opportunities and things moved very quickly. But um, it, it was, there was no doubt in my mind that that's where I wanted to end up. I wanted to end up on a presidential campaign and I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to do it with Senator Obama. Well, and you were right there in the, in the policy center of the campaign. When President Obama was elected, he named you deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council, the DPC, uh, an important component within the White House. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with uh, the White House structure and how the DPC kind of operates with you know, uh, other uh, components that do have a policy function, NEC, uh, CEQ, OMB, <laughs> Can you describe uh, the role of DPC uh, within the White House? Sure. Well, first, I think one thing that is surprising to people when you start really understanding how the White House works is that the staff is really pretty small. You have small teams that are leading and coordinating work on a set of issues, working with agencies, working with others, but it's a pretty small team. So the Domestic Policy Council uh, coordinated and led work on education policy, worked on health care, worked on immigration, whole set of issues, criminal justice reform, um, in conjunction with some of the other policy councils. So uh, the National Economic Council, we worked very closely with on higher education, uh, on affordable housing, on issues of that nature. And these small teams of, let's say, 10 to 12 people are really have day-to-day -day responsibilities for taking the president's agenda forward, engaging with different agencies, cabinet secretaries, uh, with the Office of Management and Budget, and bringing that agenda to life. It's a really intense job to do that coordination and provide that leadership, but it's essential because you're the closest to where the decisions are being made in the Oval Office or in the Chief of Staff's office. And so you have this responsibility to convene the right people. Never have I been more valuable in my career than figuring out who goes to what meeting. Uh, <laughs> and I say yeah. that a, a bit uh, facetiously, but I, I mean it because if you get the right people in the room with the right agenda, you can get things to move forward and you have to move very quickly. And um, it it really, you can't sort of dither around and have week after week of just let's, you know, jawbone this or that. You've got to have a process that's moving forward um, and you have to have the right people engaged in it. So the DPC staff would take a series of issues and priorities that were important to the president and uh, work at, at advancing that with cabinet secretaries with others. Um, and we would also deal with challenges and problems as they came up. If there was um, something that was a, a problem for the administration to deal with, it would often fall to us to sort out, figure out, okay, you know, how do we handle this? And um, sort of being at the center of that, working with these other teams was really um, a really exciting opportunity to, to have. When, when President Obama was pursuing health care reform, there was a team within the White House that was focused on that. It wasn't centrally our job, but we were a part of that. And we would take pieces of that agenda and be able to move them forward while they were working on the day-to-day -day of advancing the, the legislation. So it was interesting, just the, the massive cross-section of issues that would come when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened. Of course, that's not centrally a domestic policy uh, center priority, um, but we had to worry about the workers that were impacted. And what kind of services they would need, how they're being taken care of. And so all these different events that would happen that you're either problem solving or driving forward, the DPC would find itself involved in. Um, you know, your, your career has been a study in becoming more and more important to the people that you're working for. Um, 
that happened with Senator Kerry. It happened with President Obama after uh, you were deputy director of the DPC. He then nominated you to serve as deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Um, I know when I got to the White House, I was blown away, despite a, you know, a career on Capitol Hill where I thought I knew a lot, I was still blown away when I got to the White House and learned and had access to the Office of Management and Budget, the experts that reside there, um, the history that they have at their fingertips and the expertise. Um, you know, you obviously were then um, not at a very high level um, operating a group of people that maybe you hadn't had as much exposure to when you're on the Hill. So was there something that you can uh, describe for our li listeners that you took away from that experience that was new? Yeah, absolutely. You know, now I'm going to contradict myself because I just said the White House staff is really small and that's true. But the secret weapon, in my opinion, within the executive office of the president is OMB because you have this incredible team of about 450, 480 career staff uh, who cover every agency, every issue, know the budget inside and out, know all the issues associated with it, are top-notch professionals. And they're in the White House. They're part of the team. And especially as a new administration is coming in and you're getting your appointments made and people in the, in the door, and like this incoming president will face a crisis to respond to, you have a team that knows so much about how to respond, about programs, about resources. And so when I had the opportunity to join OMB and really understood the power of the team and what that would mean in terms of how we could influence and be a part of conversations within the West Wing, uh, I thought I just hit the jackpot. And it wasn't about me. It was about how do we bring their expertise to that table? and how we can really deepen the analysis and the, and the expertise around the table. Because as I said, it is, it's a pretty small staff, generally speaking, and OMB is a secret weapon. And I was so impressed by the quality of the analysis, um, the professionalism, the, the way in which people worked relentlessly and tirelessly, despite not having the fresh legs because they don't turn over every four years like everybody else in the White House complex. They're so dedicated to their work. So that was a hugely exciting um, opportunity to be a part of. And when I joined the team, we were, the, bu the budget was the issue at that moment in 2011. Budget negotiations were in full effect. It was the big issue between Congress and the White House. And we were thrown in. The, the director at the time was Jack Liu, who was an OMB veteran and just an absolutely masterful um, budget expert and, and leader. And so he knew how to draw on the building for all of its resources. And, and we were able to do that. But we'd find ourselves day in and day out. The vice president was leading these negotiations. And we'd go up to Capitol Hill. We'd have negotiating sessions. And we'd bring these huge binders of analysis and information that the team at OMB had compiled. And they knew the ins and outs of every budget, arcane rule, past law, et cetera. We were so well equipped to, to go into those rooms. And I was new to the team and I was going through a confirmation process, which was not the most pleasant experience of my life. And to be sitting in those rooms on Capitol Hill supporting the negotiation, feeling I just joined this, this organization. I'm sitting here next to the vice president with the speaker of the house, the, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to work this through. I thought, I know what's in this binder. 
I know who prepared it. I understand the information. And I feel like I can sit at this table and contribute to this. And that is an unbelievable first opportunity and uh, second uh, reflection of the team at OMB and how good they are. One day we were there and uh, Jack, the OMB director, was called to the White House to meet with the president. So he turned around and said, hey, can you take my seat here? I said, okay, and I got my binder and I moved up and I was sitting next to the VP and the next set of provisions that we were going to discuss, the VP wasn't, Jack was going to do the presentation. And so the VP looked at me and said, okay, you ready to go? And I knew them and I went through it and it was a good back and forth. I'm not going to say it was key to to the resolution of the negotiation, but we got through it. And afterwards, the vice president turned and said, man, I really wasn't sure what you were going to do with that football. Thank goodness you spiked it. And I thought, well, that's exactly how I feel right now. And I went back to the to the White House and I, I called the couple folks who had prepared those provisions. And I said, you just made not just me look good, but the vice president and our whole team. And I thanked them because that's that's how good that's how good they are. Oh, what a moment. I love that um, because it's frightening. You know, I mean, when when the tightrope is extended in front of you and, you know, unexpectedly, uh, all the work that you and others did to prepare the principles um, in that moment, you became the principal. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the a key participant in that negotiation, that is fantastic. I do want to ask you about um, the confirmation process, because we're watching the president-elect today uh, name folks who are going to have to go through it. You've done it twice successfully. Um what would your advice be to folks who are now, um, you know, not just the cabinet secretaries, but, uh, you know, obviously there are a good number of staff who need to be Senate confirmed? It is a challenging process, regardless of what position you're going to be nominated for, you know, whether you have a lot of support, whether it's a controversial position or not. You, you, you're putting yourself out there in a way that really you're the only person responsible for your success in this process, and yet you rely on all these other people to help you through it. So the advice I would give is make sure you're in control of your process. I walked in a bit naively to my OMB confirmation process because I had a lot of relationships with our team and the administration. I knew I would, quote, be taken care of in the sense that people would make sure I was well prepared and I would understand the process. but I ran into some some challenges and I had to look in the mirror and say, you got yourself in this. You got to get yourself through this. And I did have people to support me and work with me. And, you know, the, the confirmation process is not always on the level. I was attacked for things that really had nothing to do with me. I happened to be the person that um, a few senators decided would make a great um, uh, a great target for you know part of the budget debate. And. Everyone would say, well, you know, this isn't about you, Heather. The president said that to me. Lots of people. This isn't about you. This is politics. They're just using you to make this point. And I said, I do understand that. But they keep saying my name. (laughs) They were really, you know, you feel that. And and I I really um, wished I'd gone in understanding that that is a possibility and how to be prepared for it. And I got through the process and I was really pleased to have a good, strong vote to be in the role. I wouldn't wish that experience upon anyone. But when I was nominated again at, at the State Department, uh, it was a very different process because I'd been through it once. But I also, I knew my gut. 
if there was something I didn't know, if there was a conversation with a member of Congress I thought didn't go well, uh, I wanted to follow up. I wanted a strategy. I didn't want to put it in, just in anyone else's hands. And that doesn't mean that I drove the whole thing myself. I absolutely did not. But I just said, this is you know your fate. You've got to really trust your gut and dress things as they come up. And um, it you never know where it can go. I, someone said to me at the very outset of the OMB process, we think this is going to go fine. This is where you have support. These could be the problems. But let's be prepared just in case, because it's too late if you hit, you know, if you hit some rocky shoals. They were right. And I hadn't listened to that advice. Well, that, that is such good advice. And so our listeners are aware, um, you you got 64 votes, a very strong vote, as you said, on your first one, and got 74 votes uh, when you were nominated um, to the position of Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. Um, you were the first woman uh, in American history to hold that position, which on the one hand, it's jaw-dropping that it took until 2013. Uh on the other hand, what a what an accomplishment! Um, this is a, another very large bureaucracy, uh, so much larger than OMB that you are now managing. Um, what did you learn about running an institution of that size that was different from managing managing smaller teams of people or even medium sized bureaucracies? It it was not only so much larger; it was. It, it, it was and is a global operation. So not only do you have 70,000 employees, they are spread all over the world. And when you come into an organization like that as a political appointee, you also know you're not going to be there forever. And so one of the things that's consistent in terms of smaller organization, OMB and the State Department, is you need to start by listening and really getting to know people. So that was a much easier and quicker job at OMB. <laughs> Uh, to understand the organization, the challenges, you know, et cetera. But at the State Department, I really spent the first months going bureau by bureau to understand the issues, the challenges, the opportunities, um, asking some of the hard questions, talking to people not just at the top of those offices, at the top of the, you know, sort of hierarchy, because they don't always want to reveal where there are challenges. And my job was to make sure we were managing risk properly, that we were efficient with resources. Uh, and you don't always get that information from the person who's running the place, running the office. And it was really, really important that I took that time. And I think some folks wanted me to come in and start doing things right away. And I, I of course, we were addressing things as they came up. And I was involved in, in foreign policy and national security discussions and issues and uh, foreign assistance funding. But I was, as it related to the management of, of, the, of the building, so to speak, is what we call it, even though it's all over the world. Um, it was really about understanding the place and getting to know what what were uh, perennial challenges, what were what were urgent challenges, um, and who were the who were the people who were entrenched in the way things had been working, and who were the potential partners to address problems and not look the other way. And I think there's there's a bit of a dynamic. And in the State Department, and I'm sure this is true in other agencies, of we have to protect the institution because we're the career folks and we'll be here forever from the vagaries of its political leadership, which is not to say there was hostility. In fact, I think there was quite a lot of support for Secretary Kerry and his leadership. But there's this sense of, oh, here's someone new with a new agenda. We have to, you know, protect ourselves from all the great new ideas. 
And so there was a process of sort of working through, well, we do agree some things just aren't working. We both agree that. So let's come together to figure out, and let's not just impose it. And there were successes uh, that we that we had, and there were some roadblocks that, frankly, I think in retrospect, I would have been a bit more heavy-handed, so to speak, in addressing them as opposed to saying, let's figure out how to work through these challenges together. Um, and I think you learn a lot from those processes, but you also understand that for a 70,000 organiza person organization that has outposts in nearly every country in the world, you can't know or do everything. You've got to prioritize around risk and around opportunity. And you have to have built up your relationships with people who can raise the flag when a new, new problem emerges. Yeah. You know, your experience is, I think, pretty unique, um, not just for the heights you've attained, but you've done it on domestic policy and foreign policy. And most people in politics, I mean, our, our, our political discourse is mostly domestic. And most people who work in politics or policy, um, they are better with domestic policy than foreign. It's like a right hand, left hand sort of thing. Right. Uh, and I put myself in that category, much more comfortable talking domestic issues than foreign policy. But what appeals to you about both? Since you, I should note, after the State Department, you then uh, helped run an organization called CARE, uh, a humanitarian agency um, with, focused on emergency relief and, and long term international development. Well, you know, I would consider myself, um, like you, someone more comfortable in the domestic policy space and where I thought I would be forever until I teamed up again with Secretary Kerry and he asked me to join him at the State Department. And my original intention in doing so was just to help him really get settled and oriented. I was invested in his success and I'd been in the administration for a while. He'd been a senator for 29 years. I knew that um, he, he wanted me to help him get settled in. Ultimately, I stayed and had an unbelievable opportunity there. But I also had to adjust my thinking and, and sort of jump in on the foreign policy side. And I loved it. And I think if you love policy, um, and I, the way I do, and, and so many people like me do, every issue is interesting when you start diving in and you start working with experts and you see the opportunity for change or uh, how to make something better, whether it's on the foreign policy side or the domestic side, and you bring the same skill set. You don't bring the same knowledge, right? There are foreign policy experts are teeming out of the building at the State Department. I did not need to know everything about every country, every capital, every political situation, but I had to know how policy is made, relationships, et cetera. I had to be able to learn quickly, synthesize information. It's very similar to work in the domestic space. It's a similar tool set very different context. And I would never consider myself to be um, a foreign policy expert. And I would never refer to myself as that. And I, I think the world is too big and the issues are too complex. But to be versi versatile in uh, the policy space and diplomacy was one of the most exciting opportunities I had to sit at the, the sit room table working through issues related to migration refugee admission, some of the things I felt the most passionately about, and a whole host of other issues, um, was a, was an enormous privilege. And I, I sometimes can't believe I was sitting there when I look back on the, the last four years. Yeah. So I, I want to uh, uh, come up to present day. You are president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Policy Center. Um, JPMC, another global organization, very high profile. Um, why did it create the Policy Center, and what are you working on? It's a 
really sort of a unique opportunity. So I didn't anticipate joining the largest bank in America and, and, and working in the private sector. That's not had been my experience. It wasn't really my intention. But I was approached about an idea that our CEO, Jamie Dimon, had, which was to build the capacity of a team to focus on issues of inclusive economic growth, but not those that are related to the day-to-day business of, of the firm, of the bank. This isn't about how does the bank do its work. This is about how do we make the economy work for more people. And after two decades in Washington working on policy, I have often felt like the private sector was missing from conversations it should be a part of. And they should care. When I say they, I just mean the private sector. They should care about whether the economy is working in all communities in a city or all communities in a state. They should care about whether um, we have the right standards for labor and for pay. And these are very controversial issues. Uh, for the private sector and for some businesses. And our CEO said, we invest philanthropically. We invest through our data and research. We have expertise as a firm. We see that we need policy, systemic policy changes to address some entrenched problems. And we want to use our data, our evidence, our research, and be involved in those conversations. We need to build a team to do it. And that's what the policy center does. And it's unique, uh, not, not so unique that nobody's doing some of this work, but unique in that we've set up a dedicated capacity to do this. And the first area we focused on and we're involved in many others now was on removing barriers to opportunity for people with criminal backgrounds. So you think, why is the biggest bank in America trying to, you know, break down these barriers? Well, the reason is that one in three Americans has a criminal record of some sort. It's a huge barrier to employment. As a firm, we were were hiring people with criminal backgrounds where we could appropriately, we're highly regulated and learning how we could do that more and better. 10% of our annual hires, new hires in the U.S. are people with criminal backgrounds. So as a firm, we were we were focused on this work. Philanthropically, these issues were being raised in communities all the time and intersecting with our work. But the real way you take on those barriers is through policy change. And we developed an agenda and have been advocating around it, bringing a business voice um, to tables, working with criminal justice organizations, working with other businesses, working with nonprofit and community organizations to try to address some of those barriers. And it's, it's exciting. We've, we've, we're seeing, we, we come to these conversations with humility. We care about these issues. You care about these issues. We share the same values. How can the business community play a role here? And um, with that kind of partnership and approach, we're really excited that um, we're able to engage in ways that we've worked before. Well, and now as the principal of this organization, you've got a, you know, a staff uh, working for you. What do you want them thinking about uh, and doing each day um, in order to help you and the organization be successful? I think one of the things that's most important about any team that I've worked with, but certainly here, is that um, our, we need to build relationships internally and externally in order to do our work. We're not just, you know, we're not just making something and moving on. We are all about relationships. And we need to reflect the values of the work that we're doing and the values of, of who we are in all of those relationships. So what does that mean? That means we are ethical, we are honest, we are transparent, and we are impact-oriented. So we're not just trying to promote something about the firm, ourselves. This is about impact. This is about how do we make change. And so for our team, it is keeping really being very clear that our relationships and building those are critically important to impact and impact is our North Star and that you have to not make the work about yourself because if you do, that's not about impact and that you have to be collaborative. 
And I seek people like that out. And when I work with people who, who don't have that scope or vision, I often find myself frustrated that we're not on the same page. And so that's how I've tried to build my team. And sometimes, you know, someone will say, well, we have this unbelievable expert on X or Y, and they might make a good fit for your team. There are a lot of experts and a lot of issues. And it's really about, you know, people who are substantively very good, but really bring the right approach, attitude, and, and values to the work. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I recently heard an interview with the, um, the CEO of Shake Shack, and he was telling a story where he said, you know, when you're in business or any large endeavor, it's really about solving problems, you know, that you never, you never reach the end where all the problems are solved, that the job is solving problems. So really, you should look at who do you want to surround yourself with as you solve those problems, because that's, that's the nature of the work. That's right. And you know, as I think about that, the other the other thing I look for in, in my staff, I have I think I have good instincts, but I'm quick to make decisions and I'm quick to go to the next step. And I look for people who will say, yes, but or yes, and have you thought of this? Have you considered that? Have you talked to this person? And I don't want to say they slow me down because that that's not what I mean. It's that we can drive things forward, but nobody is so wedded to what I've said or laid out that we can't improve upon it. And, and I look for that in, in teammates because I want to make sure we are driving toward that impact, but I want other people to help me think about how to do it. I don't think I always have the right answers. And you're right about who, do, who are those people? The Shake Shack CEO is right. Who are those people you want to do that with? Do you have a pet peeve? Paper clips. I can't stand paper clips. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. I My pet peeve, I think I have a couple. I really get frustrated with people who... I believe that people should focus on their professional growth and where they want to be and how they want to achieve that. I get really frustrated when people put that ahead of what we are trying to achieve as a team. So in other words, I have to be at this meeting because I have to be the person to say that. That yeah. sort of thing is, it, it's, it really detracts from, from the overall work. And when you find people like that, you don't want them on your team. You want the people who are just there and we're united and we're moving forward. So I think that's my pet peeve and paper clips. They get stuck on everything. I don't know why they were invented. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm a staple guy. <laughs> I, I, I have no use for paper clips. Um, uh, you know, now that you've spent time in the private sector, uh, were you to go back, um, you know, into public service, what would you take from this current experience that uh, would help you be effective there? I think it's great to be part of, a, uh, this is my first time in the private sector. So you can sit in government and say, well, this is how a business thinks or what they do or what their calculations are, what the people are like. But if you're not part of it, you don't really know. And I would take that experience of knowing how business leaders think. You know, you make a lot of assumptions about what they're thinking, but actually being able to see it, I think, is different. And also in policymaking and government, you're making laws or proposing changes to laws and you don't actually always fully understand their impact. And by the way, I am not suggesting that this is specific to, to J.P. Morgan Chase or the financial services industries, but being on the other side of some of those conversations, you realize that there just needs to be a lot more dialogue about how things work within a business or within a particular you know, context or ecosystem and who's making and writing the laws. And there's dialogue, but it, it's, it clearly needs to be... Um, better. It needs to be stronger. It needs to be less kind of risky on both sides to, to genuinely have those conversations to result in better outcomes. Yeah. 
Um, okay, I'm now going to move into a section of this interview where I've got some recurring segments. Um, one of them is called Across the Aisle. Who is a someone from the other side of the aisle who you've gotten to know in your career that you really admire? You know, there's quite a few, but the, the first one that comes to mind is somebody I worked with when I was at the State Department working on foreign assistance uh, funding. And his name's Paul Grove. And he's the, the lead Republican on the Senate uh, Foreign Affairs Funding uh, Appropriations Team. And he is, I, I loved working with him. So we would have, you know, pitched battles over funding levels between the administration and Congress. Um, and every conversation I ever had with Paul Grove was about how was the money being spent? What were the conditions on the ground? What were, you know, really never political, never about what's, we have to hit a target. You know, we did have to hit a target somewhere. There had to be an agreement and it, theirs was going to be lower than we were, where ours was. But it was never, you know, questioning the motivations of the administration, this policy, that. It was, how is this money spent? And he traveled and he asked the right questions. And he was never, he was always as honest in a conversation with you as he'd be having a conversation about you. It was just really, he has so much integrity. And I I never, people would always, you know, within the State Department, I'm sure this is true of any agency, you're always cagey about what you're, you know, authorizing committees, oversight committees um, might think or do and how you're going to talk to them. And, I, and, and I've been a part of that because, you, you know, there are repercussions for your agency um, to some of those conversations. But I never felt that way with him. I always felt like, you know, I could tell him exactly what we wanted to achieve and why. And he would listen to that. He might not agree, but that we weren't going to be playing games. And yeah. unfortunately, I don't think there was enough of that, although certainly I've had other relationships like that, either on the Hill or in, in other contexts. Yeah. Um, OK, my next one for you is called In the Vault. It is a time when you really screwed up. Um, what happened and how did you recover from it? I'm sure that I've forgotten more than I can remember on purpose. Um, but I, I will say one thing that is consistent when I've screwed things up, it's because I haven't done my work. I have not done, mm. I haven't, I haven't prepared well enough. I haven't read something. I have just, you know, gone on instinct instead of really pulling the thread. Um, we were, we were in the State Department um, working on a, um, our technology, you know, all across government technology is antiquated. And the State Department's technology is no exception to that and subject, as you can imagine, to constant threat of, um, uh, from, from, you know, viruses and attacks from other governments because the State Department has so much valuable information. And um, we needed to, you know, make sure across the, all the government agencies, but certainly in the State Department, we were keeping up on those standards, and um, I was meeting with our team, the career team, and sort of getting the update, and yes, we've done this, and yes, we've done that, and um, I didn't look under the hood enough, and I took too much for granted, and when we did, we were the subject of attacks every day, um, and, and nothing catastrophic happened, but one day, you know, we were looking at something and realized that what I'd been told wasn't true, and we did have a vulnerability. It wasn't there was nothing, nothing happened, but that would have been my fault if something had happened, directly my fault. So I, I mentioned that because it could have had really severe consequences and it was my fault for not really digging in on it. And thank goodness nothing happened, right? I mean, mm. thank goodness. And, 
but that's the perfect example of just kind of going too fast. You have so much pressure. There's so many things. And sometimes you just say, eh, okay, sounds good. I got to get to the next meeting. And that can be catastrophic. And I'm so lucky nothing happened, but it could have. You know, I think something that uh, the public at large sort of underappreciates or maybe fails to appreciate about people who work in government, certainly the ones I've met, is that we strive for perfection. Right. And there's so much uh, to consume at all times and be expert on that. Of course, we are imperfect, but we are really going for that. That's true. And, you know, to your point about there's there's always one more thing to read. And, and we live with this pit in our stomachs, but that maybe the thing that was just on the next item to get to is the most important. That's one. right. And the things that you've got to be prioritizing risk and so on. But sometimes those are not the things that are on fire and you're totally focused on the things that are on fire that you have to run to. You've got to go to this urgent meeting, secretary needs something, or the president or the vice president, whomever it might be, and you think, oh, well, this isn't on fire today. Well, you've got to know somehow it could be, and and that you've got to, you know, strive for, for perfection for those things. And it's hard to do. I mean, I, I think you're right, though, that, I mean, my experience in government, one of the things that I've missed over the last four years is the people you work with are exceptional. And I don't just mean our, our friends and colleagues we might have campaigned with or worked in the White House with. I mean people who are dedicated public servants who are there day in, day out, year after year. Um, and I work with great people now, but it's not the same. It's not the same as working with, with the civil servants and foreign service officers that I had the privilege of working with. So I have uh, this fantasy that one day I will build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National <laughs> Mall and fill it with statues. Um who would you nominate to my staffer Hall of Fame? Wow, what a great question. So, oh gosh, I, I hope it's a really big, uh, a really big uh, honorific. Um, so Madhuri Komareddy is someone I would have to nominate to the Staffer Hall of Fame. I, I met Madhuri in 2007. She, we hired her on the, on the policy team of the campaign, and she was brought to our attention because she had uh, worked on President Obama's book as kind of a fact checker, and so this woman's amazing. So got her to quit Yale Law School or at least put it on you know, hold for a little while and come join the campaign. And this woman is unbelievably brilliant, can produce information so quickly. Can, it, she, I've just never seen anyone like her. She's also just the most fun, interesting, cool person. But I mean, we're in the heart of the campaign and, and just the, the middle of it. We're just going, you know, running out of steam day after day. The primary is going on forever. We're all working, you know, seven days a week. You know, you, you're never really off. And she came to me and said, you know, I just need more to do. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and I was said, Madhuri, I mean, you're, you've got this thing and this thing. And this. She said, I know, but I've, I've done it. And I'm just used to doing more. I mean, you couldn't, you could not, you could not give her too much. And she was always, all of her projects are amazing. She's now the head of um, workforce for the state of New York, and I'm sure she has made an incredible, uh, had an incredible impact there, but she would be in my Hall of Fame for sure. Oh, incredible. Um, okay, last question for you. If you could, could get into a time machine and give your 25-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? Um, get a new hairstylist. But after that, um, <laughs> it was a little rough then. Inappropriate for me. Yeah, it, so. uh, but but I, in seriousness, what I would tell my 25-year-old self was appreciate all of the different experiences that you are having. I think that 
you know, I never had aspirations to work in the White House or the State Department. Of course, I would have loved to have done that, but I wasn't sitting around with my map trying to figure out how to do it. But in the process of going from job to job and experience to experience, you forget how incredible your experience is and what's happening. And I'd write it down. So, you know, experiencing 9-11 in the U.S. Senate, you know, like Mm. I can remember some of that, but there's so many moments like that. And you never know what direction your career is going to go in. And there are so many things I wished I could remember better how I felt, what it was like, that I had just taken a moment to take it in, as opposed to been so focused on going to the next thing. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Heather, for spending this time uh, with me and with our listeners. You you truly are the pride of the Southern tier. <laughs> and I am so glad that our paths cross. I actually have my mother to thank for that. <laughs> she was a teacher in the Shenango Valley School District right. at Port Dick Elementary. And when you were on the front page of our newspaper as going to work for President Obama, she called me and said, you have to look this person up. And so I walked my way up to the DPC. Um, and that's when we first met. And your, your career, your insights, your wisdom, um, are just so instructive and um, I really can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. And I should put a plug in and say your mom was beloved, a beloved teacher at Port Dick Elementary School and behind Port Dick Elementary School is where I played my entire soccer career uh, in high school. So just all these connections, they're amazing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, she'll be so pleased to hear that. So thank you. Um, and again, Heather, thank you. I look forward to talking again soon. Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.